listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And i got to tell you something, people. So me and Joanne got back from our honeymoon. We went to uh, Dubrovnik, which is in Croatia, which is in Europe. And what I noticed was, is in Europe, the people smoke and they smoke a lot. Now I'm an ex-smoker, but I never smoke like them. I mean they're smoking in between meals, in between bites they're smoking. It's unbelievable. So at least they're not vaping, right? Anyway, we have a great show today. Uh, my guest, I actually saw him in Philly a while back and uh, we've been going back and forth and I finally got him on the show. He's part of a band that I love and he has a great career. And my guest is uh, Nick Thumbner from Wang Chung. How you doing, Nick? I'm very well, thank you. I used to smoke too. I haven't smoked for about 15 years. Well, I say that, but I did have a few sort of secret cigarettes on our last US tour, but don't tell anyone. I won't. I, I was going to ask you, because, you know, you, you've been touring for a long time, and you're an ex-smoker. Um, what is uh, what is it like now when you go to a, a venue and people can't smoke? And back in the day, people smoked pot, people smoked cigarettes. As a performer, did you notice it? Because I was just such a, you know, before I didn't care. It was I was a smoker and I loved smoking, and so it was no big deal to me. Um, but uh, in fact, it was quite weird when people stopped smoking, just because you know you're kind of used to that rock and roll atmosphere of smoke and alcohol and sex, drugs and rock and roll. But um, I, th- I have to say, now at my old ancient age. It's very good that people don't smoke because um, for someone like me who's kind of struggling with... Well, I'm not struggling. I've done pretty well not smoking, but it makes it that little bit easier to resist the temptation. Just obviously disregarding the fact that I admitted to you I'd smoked a little bit on our last tour, but I kind of got back to the UK and I felt quite... I've got it all under control again, so it's got a happy ending. Good, well, I'm good. So you, you just on tour now. Now, how did you start your musical career? I read that you originally went to college for psychology. How did that end up being a musical career? Um, well, I suppose the best thing that happened to me in that respect was getting thrown out of university. Uh, uh, not sort of. I, I went to the sort of to Liverpool University. I'd been in a band with John Moss of Culture Club before that. We kind of learned to play together, and uh, so I went to university. Was interested in psychology. Used to, you know, was reading books off my own bat. You know, of I was interested in it, but I found the course really. Uh, too, it was sort of trying to be too scientific. It was kind of there was a an obsession with uh, statistics and stuff like that, which I found all a bit too uh, dispiriting. <laughs> so, and it didn't seem to me about people and about you know what I was interested in. So I sort of progressively got more and more um, disillusioned with it and sort of sunk back into my true love which was music and I joined some bands up in Liverpool and uh, eventually uh, because I hadn't done any work and had studied <laughs> sort of alcoholology rather than psychology um, well, they eventually threw me out after two years well, quite rightly because I was useless but uh, which was the best thing that happened to me because it really I had to focus my energies on getting into music uh, which is what I truly wanted to do anyway so that's when I came down to London, 
my parents weren't too happy with me. I didn't, so I wasn't talking to them. And I managed to get myself a job as a booker. I thought, as an agent, so I thought it would be um, a kind of smart thing to do to try and actually have a job in the industry, uh, whilst at the same time sort of getting some contacts for my sort of hopeful, hopefully successful mu musical musician career you know so I did that um, I did this agency job for a while and it was an exciting time actually in the UK that's when punk was just beginning to break so it was like I got really into it and uh, I started getting bands like uh, The Clash gigs and, uh, and, and Adam and the Ants who I ended up uh, sort of getting quite a lot of gigs for them and um, got them signed to the agency. Uh, it's, but it's just before, around that time, I really had sort of got a bit fed up with just being a booker. You know, I wanted to be a musician. I was inspired by punk. And there was this sense of kind of a do-it-yourself sense of punk, you know. Um, so... That, that inspired me to get off my arse and kind of hand my notice into the job and uh, look for people to play with, you know, musicians. And that's how I f eventually found Jack, by putting an ad in the, in the Melody Maker, which was a, a, a big music uh, magazine at the time. I put a classified ad in the back pages, put this big ad in that made me look all important, which I totally wasn't. And uh, he was foolish enough to <laughs> to respond to it. Him and many others, actually. I, I, I auditioned quite a few people. But um, he stood out a mile as being really good. So that's when we kind of started to work together. Which that, and that was in, I think it was about 77 or 78, something like that, late, late 70s. Now, now, what stood out about him so much that made you just go, wow, holy crap, this is the guy? Well, I'd already, the reason I got this project together is because I had a friend of mine, I was still working at the agency, right, and um, a friend of mine had offered me some free studio time at, uh, at this little AV audiovisual studio in, in, in a London suburb, So, and I, I'd been writing these sort of punky type songs, so... We went in, when I started so finished working, then we'd go to the studio at night in the downtime. And uh, I was living with this guy from uh, who used to be in a, the band called Atomic Rooster, who are quite a big metal band uh, from a few years before. He's a great drummer called Paul Hammond. Uh, so basically, he and I went into the studio. I played all the other instruments and we were and sang and we recorded these songs and they were like punk songs with slightly sort of weird chords you know slightly harmonically unusual chords for punk you know almost jazzy type chords you know so I did these songs and then I thought like well, a band together to perform these songs and one of the people I was looking for was a guitar player and that's when Jack came along so I'd had these sort of weird chord sequences ready for the audition you know, so whoever, most people couldn't play the chord sequences I had on guitar. But Jack, I played it to Jack, so right, can you play that back to me? And he played me, he played it back really quickly. He was really on it. It was all weird chords. He totally understood them. So it, it, straight away we had, 
I, I thought this was, you know, this we're, we're of a similar mind here. Uh, so, and, and he told me after later on, once we started working together, that he was particularly attracted to the demos that I'd done because they were kind of punk, but with really weird harmonically rich chords. So I think straight away we had sort of common ground and, and then it all went from there. Now, you said you played most of the instruments. When did you actually start playing music? Were you young or at what age? No, I wasn't that young. I was well into my, I suppose, late teens. Um, so I, I sort of learnt... I was in a band with John Moss for Culture Club. We just used to jam, you know. And another friend of mine called Pete, Pete Ellison, he uh, he could play guitar. So we used to have these long kind of uh, long improvisations, you know. We, we, I was really into Floyd and the Grateful Dead and Frank Zappa and all these sort of people. So we used to have these long sort of very experimental jams that lasted for hours, you know. And, uh, and that was the way I learned, just by literally playing in, in the most free sense. And he, Pete could actually play a bit, so he taught me some guitar basics. So he got, and that's how I, that's how I learned, uh, through just sheer experimentation and playing and, and very high creativity, you know. So that's how it started. And then um, from there, as I said, I went to Liverpool University and was in various bands up there. And came once they'd thrown me out, and I kept, got came back down, done this job in the as an agent. Uh, it was then I really hit the ground as, as, as you know as runningly as I could, and I met Jack, and we started to gig together. Now, what was right together? What was it like trying to get gigs in that early age? Because you said you were there was a lot of punk, but you were punk with a little bit of jazz. Was it hard for you to get gigs in the beginning? was a sort of London circuit uh, and there were various gigs around the country that were very uh, active you know so if you could slip sort of slot into the scene uh, you could probably end up getting some support gigs and stuff and, and that was one of the reasons I got myself had got myself a job as an agent and, and booker was so I could make um, some contacts you know in the in, in the gigging world that I could use maybe, you know, once I'd left for, for any potential band I might be in. So, again, that was useful. So I managed to get some gigs uh, through my contacts that I'd built up. So it was, uh, although I'm a, I've got quite a funny story, I, I suppose now that I've, I've just remembered that I, just before I left the agency, I had started to get us some gigs so I must have done the auditions just before I left the agency uh, I must have met Jack just before I left and I remember getting uh, one of my promoters um, I, I, they booked me at, at or booked our band at, uh, at, at their college and, and I was so kind of embarrassed that I would be uh, sort of identified as the agent as well, that I kind of disguised myself with a fake beard and baseball hat and sunglasses and stuff. And <laughs> I walked in and uh, they recognized me.
has to be stretched away. <laughs> so it's very embarrassing. Now, but, uh, now, 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 when you guys started, you also you went by a different name. What was it, Nick the Spig? What was that? Yeah, I was Nick the Spig. Uh, Jack, well, Jack, Jack was his real name's Jeremy, <laughs> but um, he wrote this song called "I'm Jack Hughes," like uh, Jack Hughes, like I accuse you. You know the uh, the famous revolutionary French saying, but. Um, so he said, he had the song, I'm Jack Hughes. I said, okay, right, that's your name then, mate. <laughs> You're going to be Jack Hughes. Uh, I was Nick to, Nick to Spig is like a, a kind of this invented character of some kind of East End, like semi-low-level gangster, white boy kind of thing. Yeah, Nick to Spig, some dodgy underworld sort of character. So I just fancied the name. Now, now, you guys are digging around. You've gotten together. How do you get your first record deal? Well, again, this, uh, going back to my uh, sort of agency experience, one of, the, one, of the, uh, one of the venues that I used to book a lot of our bands into was uh, Sheffield Polytechnic, like a, the university up in Sheffield. And the, the guy who was the social secretary, the, the booker, who all the bookers of the, of the of the universities and polytechnics were were students, yeah? So the guy, I, I just made a really good relationship with this guy called Jed, who was booking all these bands. He used to book all my bands and... Uh, and then we became friends, and then he decided, you know, what, once he left uh, his job, once he'd sort of left university and therefore left booking, uh, he was looking to maybe get into the music industry, possibly as a manager. Uh, and it was then that I was, I told him that I was thinking of leaving as well, my, my job, and that would he fancy managing the band that I was getting together? So he was like, okay, yeah. So he started to manage us. Now, he became, he's, he's had a fantastic career in the music industry. He's, he managed, uh, he ended up managing uh, Paul Young and Alison Moyet, and he, he became chairman of Sony, and he's had a pretty amazing career. Uh, so I'm pretty good at spotting uh, <laughs> budding music business executives as well as <laughs> as well as bands. But um, so anyway, so he got us our record deal with uh, Arista Records. So we've been gigging around for a while. He was managing us. He got uh, Warner's interested, who offered us um, a singles deal, and uh, and then. The guy at Warner's, who the A and R guy at Warner's, who offered us wanted to sign us, but just on a singles deal, left and went to Arista Records. So from there, he tried to sign us to Arista. So Warner's then upped their deal to a, an album deal, and and there was a kind of bit of a bidding war between Arista and Warner's, and we ended up signing to Arista Records, and that's how we got our deal. We, we were kind of lucky. Um, but it it's taken a good few years of gigging around, uh, you know, uh, building up a bit of a reputation. We, we were starting to get good press and uh, we were kind of well thought of. But the shows that we were doing were, shall we say, you know, it, it wasn't easy. Some of them we get good response, some not so good. It, it, was, it was hard work and 
pretty um, what's the word we had to be tough you have to be tough you've got to be able to deal with sort of various levels of rejection you know but we kept going we had this sort of inner belief that we, we'd come through it and come through it we did certainly with a record deal with uh, with Arista uh, that was a nice deal um, so that got us into the you know in the game properly you know now, now you, you said you said you had some uh, tough gigs tell me one of your nightmare gigs if you remember in the early days because there had to be some shitholes you played with rowdy crowds oh, we, we had loads of nightmare gigs um, <coughs> I suppose I remember driving you know about five hours up to it's one of the first gigs we'd done out of town we, we, we drove all the way up to Middlesbrough um uh, which is a long time. That's a good six, seven hour drive, you know, in our horrible, rusty van that we had, you know. Um, we drove all the way up there, and, uh, you know, that expression, one man and a dog turned up. Well, it was literally was one man and a dog turned up to that gig. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so that was a complete waste of time. But we did uh, another one in uh, this place called West Runton Pavilion. It's in Norfolk, um, and it was basically a load of farmer boy punks sort of turned up. It was we were supporting someone called Toya, who was at the time just becoming very successful as a kind of slightly post-punky sort of performer, and her audience were very punky, you know, and. We were, and this place was kind of in the middle of nowhere, you know. Uh, and so we, we are, by this time, we were doing quite well. It was some of the stuff was a bit punky, but some of it was a bit more sophisticated, a bit more, you know, uh, less sort of in your face. So, anyway, we went on, and the first song was quite sort of, you know, had a bit of edge to it, a bit of vibe, so that you could see the, the audience, like, yeah, they were kind of thinking, well, that's okay. Then the next song was a bit more kind of subtle. So you could see them kind of, their minds sort of going, hmm, what do we think about this? By the third song, they, which was even more kind of arty and left they decided that they really hated us. <laughs> And that's when they started to throw things at us and <laughs> spit at us. And I mean, we were we were just getting half full bottles of you know all sorts of stuff thrown at us. And it was about after the, during the fourth song, I sort of looked around. The sound on stage was terrible. I couldn't hear anything. Um, I looked around, and the other guys had all—they just left the stage. I was just there on my own. <laughs> I literally had to run away. We had to run away from that place. Apparently, the week before, the, the entire audience had rioted, and they'd smashed up the PA, and, and there was just one big bloodbath backstage. So, uh, and that was with for a band they loved as well. <laughs> so we thought uh, we just drove off and we got the hell out of there. You know, we didn't get paid, and it was a really foggy night, so we could barely see where we were going. It, it was a bit like you know, American Werewolf in London right. or something like that. You know, it was really one of the most weird experiences I've ever had. But yeah, well, there's loads of other bad ones too. But <laughs> we haven't got all day, I guess. Yeah. Now, now you guys, you signed the first deal. When do you come to America? 
we, we'd never been to America at all in, in our lives, if you know what I mean. So uh, America, we, we, America had this magical thing for us. We, we loved American music, um, which I think was a good thing. I think it, that slightly American element has been, I think, a useful thing in, in our music. In, in terms of our career in the States, I, I think it's just it's sub, subliminally audible, if you see what I mean. But, um, so we did this first album with Arista, and it, when our name was Huang Chung, H-U-A-N-G, Huang Chung. Uh, it was a name that uh, people found very hard to pronounce for some reason. People used to call us... Hung Chung, or you know, they just couldn't get their, their heads around how to say our names. So the album sort of did well in terms of reviews. It was well, it was respected. People like, um, you know, even people like uh, Trent Reznor were sort of fans of it, you know. But, uh, but in terms of sales, it, it, it didn't produce the big hit single that the record company had hoped for and I think we were just getting it to that point with the record company that a lot of bands get to where the record company are sort of thinking well without a hit maybe this is all not going to work out and maybe we should get some hit writers in to kind of co-write with the band and you know all that kind of stuff which we were completely not into um, and it was at that point that uh, Jack came up with Dance Four Days. Um, thank God, like the cavalry coming over the hill, he came up with the song Dance Four Days. So we went into the studio, we demoed it, and it was at that point that um, I met this guy called David Massey, who was a friend of my sister's, actually. <laughs> I used to live with my sister and David Massey came over to see my sister and then he and I just got talking and it turned out that he was very keen to get into the music industry um, and I played him our album on Arista and he loved it you know um, I just on instinct I said do you fancy managing us you know uh, it, it had sort of gone a little bit with with our first manager things had sort of peaked I think so and David was new, young and smart and he seemed like a really good choice even though he was totally inexperienced so he kind of got on board and I think he really at that point with Jack wrote Dance for Days we demoed it David heard it, loved it thought it was an absolute smash he then played it to Geffen Records in America he met John Kolodner from Geffen Records the A&R guy who had actually, as it turned out, seen us play in England a, a, a while before and thought we were interesting but weren't quite ready to be signed. Um, but when he heard Dance for Days, that, that just completely clinched it and Geffen wanted to sign us. Geffen in the States, that is. You know? um, so because Arista was so... Um, how should I put it? Because they were, they sort of lost. They weren't sure whether uh, we were going to make it or not. They, I think they'd really lost their nerve with us, 
uh, even though they could hear Dance All Days was potential hits, they just weren't sure anymore, uh, which gave us an opportunity to buy ourselves out of that contract and sign straight to Geffen in the States. It was one of the most... So from being pretty close to, you know, feeling that our career was about to end uh, within about you know a matter of months we were signed to one of the most prestigious labels in America and who were really gung-ho about you know us having some you know having some great potential for success uh, and then after that you know we recorded Dance, Dance All Days Points on the Curve album for them and you know, straight away, the first single came out, it was top 40 in America. MTV was really getting into its stride, you know. So, Don't Let Go, then Dance All Days, you know, we were we were flying and uh, touring America and uh, getting recognised in every corner of the States because of MTV. It was, it was such a total contrast to where we'd been only a matter of within, you know, less than a year before. It was quite an extraordinary turnaround. Right. I, I was going to ask you, it must have been because, you know, I'm, I'm at the age where I watched MTV from the beginning. What was it like shooting that first video? And did you think that a video would impact your career so much? Um, well, when you say the first video, do you mean of, of the very first video we did? or No, when you did Dance All Days. Of Dance All Days. Um, well, we already, we Don't Let Go, which was the, we'd done a few videos before. We'd done one for Don't, Don't Be My Enemy. We did that in the UK. And then we did another one uh, for Don't Let Go. So Don't Let Go started to get a bit of traction. Um, so that went top 40 in, in the States. Uh, and that started, started to get our face around town or around the country, especially in America, because MTV didn't really exist in the UK at the time. So for us, like going to America and uh, and MTV and everything, that was pretty amazing. With Danceful Days, we did a, um, a video with um, the, the, the esteemed and sort of legendary film director, um, Derek Jarman, he's a real art film director, and he wanted to do Dance All Days, so we did this video with him, uh, which was, you know, it's a great honour to work with him, but it was very, um, how shall I put it, he, he used some sort of footage his father had shot during the war. Uh, his father was in the RAF, the Royal Air Force, and he shot this amazing footage of of him in the RAF and also um, some home movie stuff of, of his family and everything. So all, all that footage was amazing, but Derek then shot some stuff of us around it. With a kind of Wizard of Oz theme, you know. So we, I was the straw man, and Jack was the tin man, and and Darren, the drummer, was uh, the, the lion, you know. And uh, all the stuff of us, frankly, was uh, like a little bit sort of embarrassing. Uh, <laughs> but all the home movie stuff from the 40s was was brilliant. Uh, and I think uh, Geffen Records in America, they just thought this is terrible we can't use this uh it, it's just too english and not rock and roll enough so they suggested 
booked, they wanted us to reshoot a whole new video, which we did with a guy called Danny Kleinman. And he sort of came up with, I think, the video you might be more familiar with in America, with the uh, mirror ball and, and all those things, you know, the suitcase and everything. Um, so, yeah, that was a real, that was a lot of fun shooting that. Um, it was quite something to shoot two completely different videos for one song, you know. Um, uh, one thing I found about videos, though, was that there's so much hanging around, um, especially if you weren't, you know, not being the main lead vocalist. Um, you'd sort of be hanging around for the shots. Your shot, you know, you'd have a, some sort of six in the morning call to the film, to the set, and end up sort of at about four in the afternoon having your first shot. <laughs> so there's be a hell of a lot hanging around. So it was kind of. It was exciting and incredibly boring at the same time, if, if you see what I mean. Um, but yeah, it, when I look back, it's all pretty amazing, really. Now, now you started, as you said, you started gaining success from the uh, from the videos. When, what did you like? Did you like touring America in the beginning? Because you had just gone through some nightmare gigs in England. What did you? What was your vibe on American audiences? And who were you on the road with? Some of the bands you got on the road with. It, it was very. Uh, it was fantastic because it was completely different to what we'd experienced in the UK. Um, first of all, as I said, we had this you know very prestigious record deal with Geffen Records, and we we were finally in America, this country that was, you know, almost legendary to us from a musical point of view. You know, the whole experience of of touring in the States, the, the kind of the, the size of the country and the, the romance of sort of being on, on the road, you know, was pretty amazing for us, you know. Uh, and then, you know, you'd go to sort of end up in East Jesus somewhere and then you get recognised <laughs> people would know who you were it's just pretty amazing um, so we uh, we really enjoyed it and we we did some big stuff you know we toured with I think the first tour we did was with the Romantics um, just when they were kind of um, starting to, to break as well uh, we were doing some fairly big places with them and then after that we toured with the cars um and we did the heartbeat city tour which was you know pretty amazing and we played huge places and uh and we loved working with the cars and it was god, god bless rick Okasek, of course um and um that that was an amazing experience and you know people still many people still come up to to us at the gigs that we do these days and testify about seeing us playing on that those tours especially the cars one saying how good it was and how, what it meant to them and stuff you know so 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 the band the band's hot you you re get the album now then it comes mosaic did you feel when you get into the studio that there was a pressure to get a big big album because dance all days was a hit you know that album did okay but did you feel any kind of pressure because the record company was very invested in you? Um, you felt a lot of pressure. And in fact, the next album wasn't Mosaic. The next album was To Live and Die in L.A. And that was... So basically what happened was... So we had this terrific start with Points on the Curve and Dance All Days. And I think 
we were considered to be an exciting new up-and-coming act, especially in America. But all, all over, we, Dance All Days was a hit everywhere, pretty much. You know, so it was, you know, we really went from, you know, looking into, into the abyss of the end of our sort of career in the music business, signed to Arista, to you know, being high in the charts with points on the curve. Um, so, yeah, we, that was a great start. But then, you know, of course, the, the, the pressure from the record company it, straight away to come up with the next album with some hits on it. And we went off, we wrote a bunch of stuff. Um, the record company felt that we didn't have the hits yet, you know. We, we, we went into the studio with with um, with uh, with our producer um, and we were sort of trying to, all different ways to somehow come up with stuff. And we were starting to get a little bit um, dispirited, actually, a bit kind of oppressed by the whole thing. And, and then literally, again, like the cavalry coming over the hill again, uh, William Freakin contacted us, the, the film director of The Exorcist and The French Connection, contacted us and wanted us to do the music, the, the whole score of his next, his new film, To Live and Die in L.A. So it was like, it, it literally was sort of, it couldn't have come at a better time. So to, to be offered something that was to where we would compose long form music with no, he didn't want any songs, no vocals, no hits, just long form, dark, edgy kind of stuff. That's what he wanted. Um, so for us, it was just amazing. We were so excited to do it because A, you know, this guy was a legendary film producer, film director. We'd be working in Hollywood. It was a really exciting brief, you know, it gave us a lot of freedom. Um, it got us out of this sort of commercial straitjacket that we were in, in the studio, trying to come up with a hit. And uh, so we jumped at that. Um, the record company, Gaffin, were not so enthusiastic. They, they didn't. They saw that as just it, it, it as a kind of diversion away from us coming up with some hits and stuff and getting on with our commercial career. But they weren't so happy about it. But we just were very, very excited, and we jumped into that. Um, it was freaking absolutely loved what we did for him and was so enthusiastic about it that actually, ironically, it was us who decided to come up with some songs for it, even though he hadn't asked us for any songs. In fact, he specifically didn't want songs. And so when we sent him the song To Live and Die in L.A., he was like... Wow, this is so good. You know, he actually <laughs> filmed a whole sequence specially to accommodate that song. You know, and he was editing the, the film to our music. You know, it was, it was, you couldn't make it up. I mean, it was just incredible. Um, usually, it's the other way around. You have to fit in with the with the visuals, but it, he was editing them, some lots of the movie to our stuff. You know, to our music. 
And so we, in writing new songs, thought, well, maybe we should make this our next album, you know. Let's sort of see if Geffen will get more excited about that. And they, they were excited about that. They, they thought it was good. That, that, that sort of fitted into... It was a good way of following up um, Points on the Curve, Dancehall Days. They, I think they felt they could sort of get behind it a bit. So everyone sort of was a lot happier. Uh, and then the film did pretty well. It, it did very well in the rental market, you know. Um, it did hugely well. And so that album actually outsold Points on the Curve. It, even though To Live and Die, the single, it, it, it was a sort of top, it was a hit, but it wasn't our biggest hit. But it, it did just well enough to sort of make people aware that we had an album out. Uh, so, as I said, uh, To Live and Die in LA was, was, ended up being a successful album. And I, and I, I believe, I believe Dance Hall Days is in that movie in a strip club scene. That's right, exactly. Dance Hall Days is in it, and Wait, the track Wait, which is also off um, Points on the Curve. The track, the track Wait was the track that William Freakin particularly loved off points on the curve and he was using that as a sort of temporary temp track in in for to live and die in la for the rushes and it was sort of it worked so well for him that that's when he thought well why don't i just get the band themselves to write me some stuff for instead of just using one of their tracks you know so um yeah so we used wait we used dance for days and then we wrote three or four other songs and, and it so it became our next album, you know, and that was great. And, and the brilliant thing for us creatively was that I think we got, it sort of cleansed our palette, our creative palette. We, it's, we, so we'd managed to sort of side, side, we managed to get sideways around the, the commercial pressure problem. Um, we sort of managed to sustain our career fairly well uh, and, and I think we felt much more sort of inspired uh, to be able to get back on the horse of writing some hits as well as well as you know keeping the, the, the other side of what we do as well you know so Mosaic was you know spans full on pop music to you know some quite left field sort of more long form stuff like the world in which we live you know the, the track that ends the album so yeah and we found a new producer to, to work with uh, Peter Wolf who'd uh, Peter Wolf had um, he used to be the keyboard player with Frank Zappa, so to me that was very exciting, you know, as a Frank Zappa fan. And uh, he was having some hits with, uh, we, he, he produced uh, We Built the City for Starship, um, and he was on a good roll, so we met with him and uh, we hit it off. So he kind of, it was a new kind of energy you know, between us and him and uh, and for us post to live and die in LA, you know, we were ready to have some hits again. Now, what was it like? I mean, everybody have fun tonight was, was just huge. What is it like as a performer when you're sitting there and anywhere you go, there's a good chance you're going to hear that song. Does it get tired in your head or are you excited every time you would hear it? Um, 
you know what? I, I, I've, I'm at an age now where, and I have been for a while, to be honest, where I, I really appreciate our, the longevity of our success and what we achieve. I think I've got a much better sort of point of view of it than I maybe had whilst we were having the success and even afterwards, do you know what I mean? So, um, so I mean, I became, I, I worked in uh, as an A&R man for Warners and for Sony and I've done all sorts of stuff, you know, uh, after, when we, after we kind of split up in, at the end of the 80s, beginning of the 90s, you know, I, I got into all sorts of other things. And it was, it was sort of, I suppose, in the process of, you know, being an A&R man, working with other artists, that I started to realise two things. One, I was getting quite a lot of respect from other artists, you know, that I was A&Ring, from my experience as for being in a successful band. But, but I also realised, you know, how hard it was to achieve the sort of things that we managed to achieve, you know, as Wang Chung. Um, when you sort of get into the business from another side, you sort of realise how difficult it is, you know. So I think, um, you know, in my old age, I really am sort of present to the fact of, of um, what we managed to achieve and also, therefore, I'm able to enjoy it even more, you know, so so when, when we play everybody a fun tonight live, for example, and you, and you see the crowds just just go crazy, you know, and, and they really are having fun, and it means something to them, you know, it's pretty hard not to to enjoy that itself, you know, so I, I feel very lucky and blessed, you know, that we can still tour and do what we do and connect so strongly with people, you know, it's a lovely feeling, and to see it you know, in movies and commercials and TV shows. I mean, our stuff still gets regularly synced into all sorts of things, you know, and uh, big things. So it's very, uh, it's very gratifying, uh, and it's you know, it's nice to earn a few bob out of it as well. Right. Well, now, 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 when that video came out, though, the video was so big. How often were you getting recognised? Were people always recognising you guys? We got recognised. I mean, we were already getting recognised thanks to MTV in the States, especially because MTV was so big in the States before it was in the UK. So that it was already happening. But yes, of course, it got really, it really ramped up even more when we were doing Everybody of Fun Tonight and Let's Go and all those all those songs from Mosaic. I remember the. Jack and I being in New York City, I think we had a couple of days off. Everybody at Fun Tonight was like number one. And uh, we went, Jack and I were, were quite, you know, we used to check out art, we love art. And we used to go to wherever we were on tour, if we had the time, we'd go and check out the local art gallery. So we, we went, on this occasion, we went to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. Now, that's the last place you'd think that uh, we would have any trouble. So we were sort of half, we'd been there an hour or so, and then we were sitting in the in the restaurant, the canteen there, just having a little coffee, having a break before we went to see the Impressionists, you know. And then a few people sort of recognised us. Within about 
I don't know, five to ten minutes, there was a queue of people <laughs> in the middle of the Metropolitan Museum of Art queuing up for our autographs, you know. <laughs> uh, it was, like, insane, you know. So, uh, in the end, it got so bad, we just had to leave, you know. So, that's typical Wang Chung somehow, that we would get mobbed <laughs> in the Metropolitan, Metropolitan Museum of Art. <laughs> I think now, about the only band who could do that. Now, now why, did you, why did you guys break up? I mean, was it because the music industry was changing, or I mean, you, 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 what was the deal? Um, you know, funny enough, we didn't sort of formally break up, but we sort of we we kind of faded away, you know. But in the sense that, um, so we'd had Mosaic, that was huge. The warmer side of Cool, the next album, that was a bit of a struggle. I think Jack and I were starting to. Um, we're both quite, in our quiet way, we're both very strong-minded and we're both are able to do quite a lot, cover a lot of a lot of ground individually, if you see what I mean, musically speaking. So, um, so I think we both had distinct sort of visions of how we wanted to do Warmer Side of Cool. Um, so it was a sort of quiet battlefield between us. You know, I mean, we, we loved each other, but I think uh, there, there was definitely some artistic sort of friction going on. And so we didn't sort of, we didn't roll around fighting each other or punching or anything like that, but we'd quietly sort of be pissed off with each other. So, and I think that album, even though it's got some good moments on it, um, it, it wasn't a happy experience, and I don't think it was as good as it maybe could have been. So that was so. Its performance commercially, I think, also reflected the fact that we weren't truly united on it. Uh, so, and I think there was this sense. Uh, of maybe just let's give it a break and uh, I think Jack wanted to do some solo stuff um, and so he decided to go off and do that and I just uh, you know decided to well I didn't know what I was going to do it was, it's, it's funny at that time I, then I decided to, or John Moss from Culture Club he, he'd had a similar he sort of Culture Club had split up and he was looking for a new thing to do so he and I he sort of encouraged me into doing this project with him called Promised Land so we made a record together and ended up signing to Epic Records Jack made a solo album um so we both went our separate ways, but but we we still remained. Well, I suppose we had a year of maybe not talking to each other very much, Jack and I. But after that, we kind of re reconnected, and then uh, when I finally got myself a job at, at Warner Brothers as an A and R guy, we started to work together again. But I used to hire Jack to produce records or you know work on with some of the acts I was working with so we sort of collaborated in a slightly different way you know not directly anymore in Wang Chung but via other artists if you see what I mean now now you guys got back together in uh, you started playing again how did that come about um, we well as I 
so we're both doing other things uh, for quite a few years. Um, so I was an A&R guy for a long time with, with Warners and Sony. I also worked on the first five first five seasons of The Voice, the TV show. I did various things. Jack was doing some jazz stuff uh, and producing some stuff for me and various things. Um, it was... We kept being offered tours, you know. It's not, it was like... It's not like Wang Chung stopped being... having any profile, even though we weren't active, actively active, you see what I mean? Um... You know, Wang Chung just sort of wouldn't die, <laughs> and uh, and in 1998, I, I heard I was still I think I was working at uh, was it Warner's or Sony I can't remember which I, I heard that Geffen or Universal were going to put out a greatest hits, so I suggested to Jack that we we we, we record a new song. Just I'll take a few days off work and we'll record a new song and send it to Geffen and see if they would like to stripe it onto their greatest hits album so that's when we went off to record um what, what was to be um, space junk the track space junk we sent it to geffen records they absolutely loved it they stuck it on the album uh, i don't know if you know but since then of course space junk has ended up twice in um in the tv show uh what's it called <laughs> i can't be having a brain fart um the uh, the one about zombies, Walking, Walking Dead. Dead. Sorry, Walking Dead. Yeah, it's been. It was in the first episode of that, and it's been again in it again. You know, so and that's that track has become quite an important track for Wang Chung. Actually, uh, lots of people really like it. So uh, where was I? I've got a bit lost now. Um, so yeah, so we did that, but I was still, you know, working as uh, as an A and R guy. Uh, Jack did a tour of the US in 2000 as Wang Chung. Uh, he, you know, we were offered this tour. I, I, I couldn't do it because I was working for Warners at the time. So I was, I, I gave him my blessing to go off and do it without me. Um, and then it was, I think it was 2005, something like that, 2006. We were asked to go on this TV show called uh, Hit Me Baby One More Time. So on that show, sort of uh, 80s artists would be asked on the show to record this, to perform their biggest hit and to do a cover of an, someone else's hit, you know. So I thought it could be a bit of fun to do that. So we did Everybody a Fun Tonight and we did a cover of Nelly's Hot in Here. <laughs> And uh, it was, you know, a big show on ABC TV. Um, and uh, it was like one of the top shows, rated shows, actually. And uh, people absolutely loved us on it. And it was, it was really fun to do it. And I think that's when we realised that we should be, you know, doing some shows again properly. And, and maybe even record a new record. So... That, 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 that taste of sort of performing with Wang Chang on a TV show after many years of being a good 15 more or more years of not doing anything as Wang Chang, that really gave us the, the taste of it. And we, uh, 
Now you, you you're touring now. I know this last tour was that was I saw you in Philly last year. Yeah. You guys didn't play it this year, but Jack Jack wasn't on that no, tour. Did, we, no, he wasn't. No. Sorry, I interrupted you. Okay, oh no, on. I was going to say, what you know? Do you think it's helped you? I saw you tour the places pack. Do you think it's helped your music now because the '80s are making such a comeback? I was going to ask you, how, how did orchestography sell? Did that, has that done well for you guys? It's done, it's done, it's, it's, it's got a great response from the, from the fans. Um, people really love it. Um, so that, in that sense, it's been great. Uh, it's, uh, was a fantastic experience for us to, to work with an orchestra. Uh, we're, we're pretty pleased with the record. I think it's turned out really well. Um, has it been a huge success? Well, it's done okay. Um, it's something that we feel. I think there's a slight lack of awareness of it, to be honest with you. So, I think it, it you know, it's something we're going to keep um, making people aware of, and I'm sure eventually it will do well. You know, and I'm, we're hoping that maybe we might get a few, one of the, some of the tracks into movies and TV shows, like we usually tend to do. So that will, of course, will all help. Um, so, no, it's not been a massive success, but it's it's a growing thing, and, and it's something I think that's been a really good part of our, you know, 
it's good that we've done it and we can make that part of our catalogue, you know. Now, now you said you might, you know, you and Jack are going to get back on the horse. What do you see in the future for you and Wang Chung in, let's say, the next two years? Well, Jack and I are going to be working together, um, touring. We, we've got uh, various sort of gigs coming in in parts of the world that we haven't been to before. So it should be interesting sort of gigging around. Um, are new for places for us that would be an experience um, we've also we're hoping to do some orchestral shows as well um, so some of our friends and colleagues are doing orchestral albums as well so Cutting Crew Go West ABC um, Flock of Seagulls you know, there's, a, there's a bunch of people who, are, who have done or are doing what we did with orchestography. So my sort of sense is that I'd love to do some um, collaborative shows with orchestras around around the world. So that's something that I hope will happen sort of next year and the year after. You know, that, that's a, a new thing that we have, but we'll never have done before. So that'd be interesting. Um, I'm writing, I've got a load of new songs I've been writing that I'm excited about. Jack has got a solo album that he's about to put out, which is really good. Uh, I'm very excited, it's excellent, I've just been listening to it today actually, it's, it's terrific. Um, we've also are putting out a, a complete re-release kind of, of all of our back catalogue. Um, plus a load of rarities, unreleased stuff, annotations of, and stories about each of the tracks and each album. It's a really huge and totally comprehensive release called uh, Clear Light, Dark Matter. Now that will be coming out in various bits and pieces over the next year or two. So there's, there's lots of stuff to come, you know. Um, there's lots of activity in Wang Chung world you know. that's awesome well you know what Nick I, I want to thank you for coming on people go to the website it's wangchung.org go to my website coopertalk.net you can find 751 episodes email me cooper coopertalk.net so remember I'm Steve Cooper I'm only as hip as my guest don't forget drink your water eat your vegetables take your vitamins and I'll talk to you next time